When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Hello, welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to another Headlines episode here on the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast. On these Headlines episodes, we do things differently. We are covering, in today's show, three need-to-know environmental headlines. And just a quick reminder, if you're wondering why on earth I do this on most Fridays, the reason is simple, and that is because environmental climate change-related news headlines tend to get buried in the news cycle, don't they? We hear a lot about crime, we hear a lot about politics, we hear an awful lot about entertainment. And so, By doing these Headlines episodes, I am seeking, hoping, fingers crossed, I'm succeeding in elevating the need-to-know environmental headlines. So first off today, we are going to COP28. Maybe you heard on Wednesday, one news headline that was not buried. It was shouted from every media giant's rooftop. And that, of course, is that nearly 200 countries struck a breakthrough climate agreement this week. The agreement called for a transition away from fossil fuels. The deal is seen as unprecedented as it targets, again, fossil fuels, which are, let's all get on the same page, the greatest contributors to global warming. Now, we're going to talk about what the deal says, and then we're going to get into the good, the bad, and the ugly of the deal. So what does the deal say? It explicitly calls for, quote, transitioning away from fossil fuels like oil, gas, and coal, in a just, orderly, and equitable manner while accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with science, end quote. Now, a few more notable statements inside the deal include, number one, a cessation in adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere entirely by mid-century. Number two, a calling on nations to triple the amount of renewable energy, so wind and solar, by 2030. And finally, number three, to slash the emissions of methane, which, by the way, is that very powerful, more powerful than carbon dioxide, greenhouse gas. So that's the deal. Now let's get into the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll start with the good first. And that, of course, is that they finally said, the name. For the past almost 30 years, global negotiators have managed to discuss climate change and the health of the planet without addressing the root cause of the problem, without saying the name. Meeting after meeting, document after document, even in 2015, the landmark Paris Agreement, 
one phrase has always been left out, and that is fossil fuels. Any mention of fossil fuels left out. And yes, while past UN climate deals have urged countries to reduce emissions, these deals have shied away from explicitly mentioning the phrase fossil fuels. (laughs) And so, The good today, of course, is they finally said that name. If you've ever read the Harry Potter series, I'm reading it right now with my nine-year-old. We're almost done. We got about 150 pages left. It's kind of like in Harry Potter, refusing to mention the name of the bad guy, referring to Voldemort as he who shall not be named instead of, of course, his name, Lord Voldemort. It's akin to the major players in the world not saying the name, not saying fossil fuels. So yes, it is good. In almost 30 years of climate talks, and we finally said the name. We finally labeled the contributor, the cause, and it is fossil fuels. Another good, too, is, of course, that the deal came swiftly. There was very little discussion. There was very little objection. And so that tells me that World leaders know what the problem is, and they know what needs to happen. Now, whether it happens, that's a whole nother story. But finally, another good is the deal does send a very powerful message to investors, to policymakers, to the fossil fuels industry that we are shifting away from fossil fuels, and that shift is unstoppable. We know what's causing global warming. We've said the name. We are united in axing fossil fuels. So that's the good from where I'm sitting. Now let's get into the bad. The bad, of course, is that the deal does not outline enough financial support for developing countries. Critics argue that the deal lacks the financing that developing countries need to decarbonize. There needs to be greater expectations on the rich fossil fuel producers and the first world countries to phase out first. Some world leaders did criticize the wealthy emitters. I'm looking at you, United States, Europe, Japan, for failing to provide enough financial support to low-income countries that they need to transition away from fossil fuels. In places like Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia, developing nations are facing soaring interest rates that have made it difficult for them to finance renewable energy Projects. And so the issue of financing is slated to be discussed next year at COP29 in Azerbaijan. And so now let's move on to the ugly. As of Thursday, so yesterday, oil industry executives from around the world were coming out with statements saying that they are fine with the deal. So I'm thinking Shell, ExxonMobil, right? These oil industry executives. They're fine with the deal? Huh? You're fine with a deal that could very likely kill your business? And you're fine with it? I'm confused. And it's not just the oil industry execs that are fine with it. Leaders of oil and gas producing countries signed the deal. What's going on here? (laughs) I mean, the energy minister of Saudi Arabia after the deal was signed got on television and insisted that Saudi Arabia's oil exports would not be affected. Huh? Why are all these stakeholders in the business of keeping fossil fuels relevant on board with the deal? 
They're on board because the deal is not binding. That's right, my friends. This new deal is not legally binding, and on its own, it cannot force any country to act. Yes, over the next two years, every nation is supposed to submit a formal plan for how it plans to curb greenhouse gas emissions through 2035. But this agreement appeals to stakeholders in the fossil fuels industry. There's a lack of requirement to take specific actions. And so as a result, countries can choose their own pathway to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. One of those pathways is very likely transitional fuels. What on earth is a transitional fuel? It's a fossil fuel. It's natural gas. And so quick tip here, if you're reading the climate headlines and you see the phrase transitional fuels, transitional fuels are widely viewed as a code word. It's a nicer way of saying natural gas. So let me get this straight. We're going to, as a globe, transition away from using fossil fuels by heavily relying on a fossil fuel? Not sure that makes sense. But the question becomes, is this landmark agreement that came out of COP28 this week, is it all just talk? Is it just a pretty headline? Is it just good publicity? Let's not forget that at this moment in time, oil production here in the United States is surging. And in European countries, they're spending billions of dollars on new terminals to import liquefied natural gas amid the war in Ukraine, which has upended their supply. So time will tell as to whether this deal is something to be excited about or not. But let's not forget, time is running out. All right, so we're moving on to a completely unrelated story. We're moving to California. So let's pretend it's 1850, okay? You live in 1850 and you hear something about gold happening in California, so you make your way west. You find yourself in California. It's gorgeous. It's pristine. Very few people around, and you stumble upon a lake. If it's 1850, and you got to that lake in California first, that lake was yours. And that's because in California, water rights have been granted on a seniority basis. Whoever gets there first gets the water. This way of doing things, it stretched back to the gold rush when California was unchartered territory. Climate change wasn't a thing. So that lake in 1850, it's yours. Now let's fast forward to 2023. Your descendants, your great, great, maybe even great grandchildren are still living on the land that you found. They're enjoying the bounty that is that lake. Well, these days in California, 2023, California is starting to see water wars. America depends heavily on California for many beloved products, nuts, grapes, milk, lettuce, carrots. I could go on and on. And it's the water that sustains the jobs, sustains the livelihoods, creates the crops that fuels the state's economy. And yet, in no state in the United States does rainfall vary more each year. Rainfall swings between deluge 
and drought quite wildly. A New York Times analysis found that decades of unrestricted pumping has left many aquifers in California in severe decline. Add on top of that climate change, which is deepening the strains on the state's rivers, which are essential to cities and farms alike. In dry years, less snow is piling up in the mountains to feed them, and more of what does flow downriver ends up evaporating. It's soaking into the parched topsoil, or it's being pulled into the ground as farmers are over-pumping the underground aquifers. And so enter water disputes and water wars. In the north, regulators are considering stopping supplies to cattle ranchers who have been using too much water and have worsened the collapse of salmon populations. In the Central Valley, which, by the way, is home to some of America's most productive cropland, officials are taking a hard look at water rights, those water rights that date back to the 1850s. They're asking farmers to provide historical records to back up their claims that they own what they say they own. And in one area, owners of carrot fields are suing every other landowner in the area in hopes of making their neighbors share more of the burden of reducing water use. The case goes to trial next month. So the water table has gone down. It just keeps going down. And so the big question here is who owns the water when water is essential to life? Yes. But also when water is unpredictable and is doled out inequitably. In the Central Valley's enormous southern half, researchers estimate that more than half a million acres of farmland may need to be taken out of cultivation by the year 2040 to stabilize the region's aquifers. Yes, holy moly. I wanted to cover this story today because California is in the beginning stages of going through something that we're all going to have to contend with as the effects of climate change worsen. And that, of course, is the loss of something essential to life that we just assumed we'd always have readily available to us. One more quick story before we say goodbye. We're talking about sugar. We've seen an upward trend in food prices. Staple items are getting more expensive thanks to extreme weather. On a previous Headlines episode, we discussed the rising prices of olive oil and coffee and oranges and orange juice thanks to, again, unpredictable weather patterns caused by climate change because unpredictable weather impacts the harvesting of these items. Well, we can add another kitchen staple to the list of things that are getting more expensive, and that, of course, is sugar. An unusual dry spell in India and Thailand, which are two of the largest exporters of sugar in the world behind Brazil, has weakened the season's sugarcane harvest. In the past two months, global sugar prices hit their highest trading values in 12 years. And so I wanted to cover this story because. Here in America, we rely on sugar to satisfy our sweet tooth. And so a higher price on sugar may mean we eat a little bit healthier. Not so bad. We can deal. But I wanted to cover this story today so that we can zoom out and see the bigger picture beyond our own holiday cookies, let's say. For people in developing countries, the issue of expensive sugar is much more serious. For poorer countries, like in sub-Saharan Africa, let's say, 
Sugar is an important and vital source of calories. So they rely on sugar to meet their caloric needs. And so having high prices of this staple ingredient can have major impacts on human nutrition and calorie counts in these countries. And so I want to say too here, I tend to blame climate change for everything. But I must say here that yes, while climate change is a factor in this year's sugarcane harvest, there is another major factor to rising sugar prices, and that is the fact that it is an El Nino year. This year's El Nino is very powerful. It is not the worst that the world has seen. But it's important to remember that the ramifications of El Nino will continue for the next five months, and then it will dissipate. The rate of dissipation will give clues as to the impacts of El Nino for the summer of 2024. So that's our show today. I went over a little bit. I do apologize, but I will see you on Tuesday where we're doing our regularly scheduled interview. We're discussing how meditation fits into a life of intentionality. I will see you then. Have an amazing weekend and take care.